Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, Jesus Goes Global, with a message entitled, We Must Obey God. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 42, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. To say, we must obey God, well, that's to state an imperative. You know, it said of John of Antioch, he later became known as John Chrysostom, that when Queen Eudoxia was looking to intimidate him, she was told, look, the only thing that John fears is sin. John knew the raw power of sin, and he was determined to fight it with all his might. We must obey God. It's an imperative. It's not to say, I want to obey God, or it's my delight to obey God. Now, of course, to say it that way is to say something quite noble indeed. But to say must is to take away all human reckoning of the importance of the issue. So why do I obey God? Because I must. Look, I know that a great many preachers have made it quite well known that that Christians should seek after God as their highest delight. That is, they should be motivated in their holy quest by seeking the highest of all pleasures, that is, God, and to be satisfied with no lesser pleasure than the one that should consume our souls. You know, to speak that way is right and it's proper. It's excellent. It's godly motivation for the soul. Indeed, to speak of, as John Piper has, of, of Christian hedonism, you know, I'd say that's biblical. And furthermore, it's, it's a weapon against legalism. But I am here not speaking about legalism, which, you know, legalism is the thought that obedience to God earns us favor in his presence. You know, I like the appeal to Christian desire as the highest good, the, the greatest delight of the soul. I mean, that is right and that's good. But to only speak about the soul's delight is not enough. There is a divine mandate that I dare not deny. When I say I must obey God, I wish to imply that I have no other alternative. You know, I can't entertain the opposite, for I'm not permitted to do so. The one who has purchased my soul is the one who now owns my life. He's my master, and I am his servant. Where he commands, I must go. Not just because he knows that to be my only unfailing pleasure, but also because he is Lord and he has commanded it. So listen to Paul's words. They're recorded in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. See, don't let the gravity of what's just been said be missed. Paul says necessity is laid on me. God didn't invite me to preach the gospel. God commanded me to do that. See, Paul knows that a command from the divine is not to be trifled with. Regardless of the great cost to him, his freedom, his health, his reputation in the wider community, no, no, he must deny himself of all that. He is under divine mandate. Now, as we study to the end of Acts 5 and to the end of this series on Acts, we're going to hear Peter as the spokesman for all the apostles. And by the way, as he speaks, you know, I have to imagine the earnestness at which the other apostles are nodding their heads. Peter will say, we must obey God. Well, clearly God had given them a command. Jesus had told them to go into all the world, make disciples of people from every people group on the earth. They were to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was the sign of their conversion. And then 
They were to teach them to observe all that Christ had spoken. That wasn't a suggestion. It was an order from the throne room. You see, that's why when a servant of Jesus Christ does what they are commanded, they're not to be commended. They're only doing that which was commanded of them. See, to fail to obey is to be treasonous to their king. Treason is dealt with harshly. They must obey. Well, the obedience has just begun. All 12 apostles have have worked hard. They've been preaching faithfully. They've been healing the sick. They've been organizing a church, which is now too large to keep an accurate record of, of the number. But then had come that moment that would try their obedience. The high court in Israel had commanded them to cease preaching in the name of Jesus. The apostles had said no, and they just carried on preaching. They, they must obey God. They're under a divine mandate. Now, all 12 are standing before the Supreme Court, and I, I suppose it must have felt intimidating for, you know, this was the same group of men who not long before had handed Jesus over to be crucified. Same guys, same attitude, same power, same evil. Well, now let's read Acts chapter 5, 27 to 32. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You know, the high priest actually charges them with two things. The first is that in the previous meeting, the Supreme Court of this country has already ruled that all teaching about Jesus is to cease and desist. And that ends now, they said, and it's the law of the land. And the second charge is, you've attempted to create sedition in this country by arguing that we, that is, the high priest and his family, and the Sadducees and the entire Sanhedrin, along with the elders of Israel, are responsible for killing Jesus. Before I go on, let me clarify a matter. You know, in the Middle Ages, hate-filled, anti-Semitic groups charged the Jewish people with being Christ killers. Now, neither the New Testament nor the apostles ever made that charge. Let me give you an example to make that point. Years ago, when Mikhail Gorbachev was the leader of Russia, my family received a letter from the Russian government apologizing for the wrongful imprisonment and death of my grandfather. The Russian government was exonerating him of all charges that had been brought against him. And furthermore, they were admitting that injustice had been done. I asked my dad how he felt about that, and he told me, didn't mean a thing. I was surprised. I asked him why, and he said, the men who killed my father are not the men who wrote this letter. The men who wrote this letter bear no fault in that. I thought much about my dad's attitude toward that letter from the Russian government. And it seems that it's in keeping with Deuteronomy 24, 16. It says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. See, I mention that because the charge of the Middle Ages is that the Jews are Christ killers. Look, I'm fully aware that at the time of the crucifixion, there was that one very horrible moment. Matthew 27, 24 to 25 says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, 
but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, listen, his blood be on us and on our children. Yeah, that's what some in Israel did say. But listen, when they said it, the law of God had already determined that it would not be so. The people who said that are eternally judged, not their children. The children will be judged for their own sin. It's important to remember this when we hear of what the apostles are now saying to the Sanhedrin. See, in one sense, of course, we're all guilty of the crucifixion of our Lord for, you know, our sin required that sacrifice. But when the apostles say, look, you crucified him, they're not saying that to the Jewish people throughout all of history. They're addressing the actual men who did this thing. Peter's pointing his finger at the very men who orchestrated the killing of our Lord. Now the high priest wants the apostles to rewrite history. You're making it sound like, he says, you're making it sound like we're responsible for the death of that man. You know, that's fascinating. You know, because it would seem that the high priest can't even get himself to say Jesus' name. He simply says, this man. (laughs) The hatred that he still bears against Jesus is palpable. And if you think about it, you know, it's an incredible thing to say. You're making us responsible for his death. See, men in power do like to rewrite history, don't they? Especially if they can get away with it. And so, two commands are given to the apostles. We demand that you join us now and that you rewrite history. And we also demand that you also commit to stop preaching about Jesus. And that then is where Peter, speaking for the Twelve, makes his statement. You and the Sanhedrin think that what you've just commanded us is something that we're capable of obeying. We're not. We have a divine must. On the other hand, you're doing something that you're not permitted to do but we must obey God rather than men. You remind us every day, you challenge us to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful, and it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical, and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. We work together participating as servants in the faith, ensuring the good news is being delivered in as many ways to as many people who would listen. On behalf of every member of the ministry team, Dr. John, Phil, the host of In Doubt, thank you for all you do. To discover all the ministry resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Now, in stating it that way, that we must obey God rather than men, it does create a vast, uncrossable chasm. I mean, they're standing before the Sanhedrin are 12 men, men who know that God himself 
has placed them under orders. And on the other side of the chasm is the Sanhedrin, men who have been given the duty to safeguard the law of God. But of course, these men are also under a divine must. But these men have chosen to disobey God, and instead, they have imagined that it's better to obey men than God. In effect, the Sanhedrin is saying, look, we don't want you to obey God. Why don't you become like us? We don't obey God, and we have frequently ignored the law of God. We want you to also, like us, be loosed from a divine mandate. Indeed, we'll severely punish you if you refuse. And to that, the apostles answer in a way in which all Christians must also answer. The minute we confessed our sins, Jesus became our Lord. We no longer answer to our own desires. We no longer answer to the customs and the values of our wider culture. We we have only one Lord. It's Jesus. He's purchased us. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. We don't obey any command that denies this. There's a hierarchy, and Jesus is at the top. We must obey God. See, if you're a Christian, and if you've never had that explained to you, let me do it right now. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I hope you heard that. You're not your own. In today's world, there are those, especially those who affirm abortion, that will say, it's my body. No Christian can ever say those words. My body was purchased by the body of Jesus as he hung upon a tree. My rights were yielded to him. He became my Lord. I don't belong to me. I belong to him. I mean, anything less, and I become a traitor. I don't have a choice in that matter. And of course, Peter, speaking for the other 11, has more to say to the Sanhedrin. You know, the God we sold out to obey has raised Jesus from the dead, and you can almost see him now. He's gazing directly at the high priest. Yeah, you didn't want me to say his name, but I will. And furthermore, since we're talking about Jesus, I can almost see Peter now pointing his finger at the high priest. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. That's your role. That's the side you stand on. You are the Christ killer. However, God to whom we owe full obedience, God exalted him. He's leader and savior, and he's calling all Israel to repent and to receive from his gracious hand the forgiveness of sins. It's hard at this moment not to see the raw courage in this. You know, Peter has just been told to stop preaching, and in return, he actually starts preaching to the very court that has commanded him to stop. So stop and consider how important this moment is for all of us who read this so many years later. You know, there are those of us who are afraid of the courts or of the culture. We might be afraid of the law or what others will say. It's so very important for Christians to remember who is Lord. Stop saying our culture is Lord, for we do not need to obey anyone when they contradict Jesus. It was John Knox who said, with God, man is always in the majority. Indeed, Peter must have felt that to be true. Well, that's how this matter ended, a threat and Peter taking opportunity to share the gospel with the very men who were threatening him. Verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. We know that the Sanhedrin did not have the right to carry out the death penalty. Indeed, they did have the power to make legal decisions, but they needed the consent of the Romans. But we do know that when we get to chapter 7, well, no one was talking legal niceties then anymore. They simply stoned 
young man named Stephen right out in the streets, no trial, no proper procedure. I mean, this thing is starting to get seriously out of hand. They're actually members of the Sanhedrin who want to murder these 12 men immediately. And they might have. But at this very moment, we meet a very influential man. He changes the trajectory, and his name is Gamaliel. Acts 5, 34 to 40. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do to these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It's important to know a little bit about this man, Gamaliel. Luke simply tells us that he was a Pharisee, not a, a Sadducee. During Jesus' earthly ministry, I mean, his strongest opponents were not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the teachers of the Mosaic law, but the, the Sadducees, as we've seen, were far more interested in power than in matters of how to you know, properly interpret the scripture. And curiously, after Jesus was crucified, it's now the Sadducees and not the Pharisees who are most strongly opposed to the apostles. And the Pharisees are in somewhat of a subdued position. In fact, as we're going to see by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, we see that some of the Pharisees had actually converted. But as we continue to read through Paul's writings, we're also going to see that, that these so-called converted Pharisees, well, they caused a great deal of pain and damage in the early church. And so the Pharisees became, you know, a very, very complicated group. Nonetheless, we see one among them, highly respected, a man named Gamaliel. Even though Luke only mentions him here, we know that this man is remembered in history. He was the grandson of another very famous rabbi, a rabbi Hillel. Gamaliel became a leader and key teacher in the movement founded by his grandfather. Indeed, Gamaliel had a great many students, and none of them was more famous than the best of his students, a young man named Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christian leaders in history. So as a Christian, we should look back at Rabbi Gamaliel with some appreciation for the grace that he brought the Christian faith. You know, in Jewish literature, Rabbi Gamaliel was often referred to as the elder, a man of great wisdom. He was also known for his famous protection of women, as in the case of divorce. Now, even though he was a Pharisee still, it would seem because of his very exalted position, even the Sadducee majority was willing to listen to him. And his advice is simple. You know, in the Jewish history, we have a number of people who made themselves out to be something, but they came to nothing. He gives two examples. One is a man named Theudas. It's a little bit of a difficult history. It's hard to know exactly who he might have been. The second was a man by the name of Judas of Galilee. He's also killed by the Romans, who seemed to have, in his death, inspired the zealots. Nonetheless, says Gamaliel, think of these two recent examples. God didn't direct them. 
That's why they came to nothing. On the other hand, if these men are directed by God, you're not going to be able to stop them. Now, before we move on, we should ask and answer the question whether Gamaliel's advice is good advice or not. You know, I'd respond by saying there, there have been a great many ungodly men who have succeeded in doing a great bit of evil that has lived after them. I just give one example, Karl Marx. However, the second piece of advice is good advice. Gamaliel says that if this matter is of God, you won't be able to stop it. That's a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Whatever we are about, believers, let me say this, whatever Christians do that is from God, it can't be stopped. Whatever we do that's inspired by the world or the flesh, well, that can be stopped. Listen, learn to obey God in everything. Learn to fear nothing but disobeying God, and you'll succeed in all your ways. Well, we come to the end of the first section of Acts, and it simply says that the apostles were then beaten, and they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. And if that's what it comes to, do as they did. If in the end there are those that hinder us for doing the work of God and it causes us to suffer, simply rejoice. How about you? Can you learn to say with the apostles, I must obey God. I am purchased by his blood. My soul now belongs to him. John, a wonderful series. Thank you so much. One final question. What do you think are a couple of the essentials for resisting temptation? Well, um, you know, from Psalm 119, thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. So I think, uh, first of all, we need to give ourselves to the discipline, the spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading and also of memorizing so that we hide God's word in our hearts so that it comes easily to mind in the day of temptation. Number two, when we talk about, you know, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, I mean by that we don't win the war against temptation by simply fighting with our flesh. We're never going to win that. We need a sea change. We need a change of mind. We need the Holy Spirit to direct us to become fascinated with those things which are the things of God. And the more that we fascinate our things with God and with his holiness and all of those other things, the less likely we are to sin. Those are two important keys. That's great, John. Thanks again. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry, In Doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries, to receive Dr. Neufeld's new series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust, on CD for free, or to offer a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible 
www.thepowerhour.ca.